Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Living Water. And in this podcast, we're trying to look at Bible stories through the lens of water, uh, the lack of water, perhaps, or a location at a spot of water so that we can see some old stories in a new way. And today we're going to visit a story that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about, but it's the story of a battle and the death of a king, the death of the first king of the Hebrews, which is King Saul. And we may know that Saul died in battle, but there's some details here that have to do with water that are quite interesting. And it all takes place in the Jezreel Valley. So we want to talk about the valley first, the location, and then we'll start to unspool the story itself. Jezreel Valley is in the north of Israel, very beautiful. It's the breadbasket of that part of the world. It's also a superhighway, a valley of a superhighway running all the way into uh, Syria, so it's very strategic. Lots of battles have been fought there. At the mouth of the Jezreel Valley, there is a place called Megiddo, which has been fought over and inhabited so many times that the author of Revelation would dream that the final battle between good and evil would happen there at that place, simply because it's such a battleground. And the Greek word for Megiddo is Armageddon. So there you go. That's a, that's a that's another reason why we need to know about the Jezreel Valley. The southern border of the valley would be the mountains of Samaria, so that's where the Samaritan lands would end. And then the northern border uh, is the is the Carmel mountain range, and then also the mountains of the lower Galilee. So the region of the Galilee begins there. The Jezreel Valley is very much a border, about ten miles uh, ten miles wide. Mount Gilboa, which is an important mountain in our story, is on the southeast corner, the southeast border, and then Carmel, which is where Elijah had his exploits. Uh, the prophet, uh, that's on the northwest uh, corner, if you will, of the Jezreel Valley. So it's a very historic place, very biblical place. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is a, a mountain town overlooking the Jezreel Valley. So he overlooked, he grew up overlooking these stories. Uh, Jesus knew this story that I'm about to tell you. And winter rains will fall here and make this place so verdant and and things grow there very well there. Lots of wheat and, you know, lots of uh, lots of agriculture because it just gets that good rainfall uh, in the winter months and it's got water. And what will happen is that the rains will soak down into the limestone mountains and then they'll come out in springs that you can find today. So one of these springs is called the Spring of Jezreel and it's mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 29, which is specifically the story that I want to talk about today. In 1 Samuel 29, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Uh, this is the encampment of Saul and his army at this spring so he can water his his men and his horses. And it's a tough spot for him to be in because, he, well, he just shouldn't be there. Strategically, he shouldn't be there. He's come down from Mount Gilboa, which is a high place and a safe place. And now he's in the flat, broad, uh, superhighway uh, valley, if you will, facing a far superior Philistine army. So the Philistines are up in this northern part of the land, uh, seeking to exert influence on looking for uh, looking for for space, if you will, living space, and just raiding in general. One of the one of the themes I think of the Old Testament, if you want to consider this, is that the the land of the Bible or the land of the Hebrews is always squeezed between an enemy to the north and an enemy to the south. And both of these enemies, whether it's Mesopotamia, which means between the rivers, or the Nile, which means, excuse me, Egypt, which means the Nile, these are two places with lots of water. So that's another way that we can think about water in the Bible. These 
these water dynasties, if you will, are very powerful and they have armies. And the Philistines are closely aligned with that Egyptian sphere of influence in the south. But they're in the north, they're in the, the valley of the Jezreel, if you will, and they're facing King Saul for what will prove to be a final showdown. It's a bad spot for Saul because strategically he can't win, not only because the Philistine army is bigger, but they also have a superior technology. At this point in history, is about 3,000 years ago. So just imagine this this battle happens 1,000 years before Jesus' birth. I like to imagine a boy Jesus from Nazareth, you know, looking down on this valley and imagining uh, this scene. I mean, he knew, he knew the story. He was taught the story uh, by, his, by his elders, if you will. Uh, but not only do the, the Philistines have more soldiers, they also have a different technology because 3,000 years ago, that's the, that's the change from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. They're on the cusp of a technological change. The Hebrew army is a Bronze Age army, and the Philistine army is an Iron Age army. And that simply means they've got better swords, they've got better shields, and they've got chariots, which the Hebrews don't have. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a one-sided affair. There's no way they can win unless they stay in the high ground of Mount Gilboa, but they don't. They come down to this spring, and he's in a fix. First, First Samuel 29 is also a little bit of a surprise because there is an embarrassing detail. Uh, it's, a, it's a surprise story that will actually disappoint fans of the future King David. It's very, very little known. And I'll be honest, it was never taught to me in Sunday school. But in addition to this Philistine army, uh, David now, who was formerly allied with Saul, has now cashed his chips in, if you will, with the Philistines. He is supporting one of the Philistine kings and intends to fight against Saul and his army, his own countrymen. And so 1 Samuel 29, is not only is it about the, the eve of the battle, but it's also this argument between the Philistine lords about what to do with David. They don't want him. And a good analogy might help here from the movie from the movie Braveheart. If you know that movie at all, Braveheart's the kind of movie I sort of watch all, all the time, watch it over and over, that one and maybe The Godfather uh, and Patton. Uh, but the, Braveheart, in Braveheart, there's a scene where Irish conscripts who are fighting for the British king or, or in battle or supposedly joined in battle against Irish volunteers for the Scottish side. And then when they meet in the middle, they all decide that they're kinsmen and they're not going to fight each other, right? They're, because they're Irish. And the and the, the English king says, well, there you go. That's what happens when you trust the Irish. They're not going to fight their cousins. And I think this is what's going on in 1 Samuel 29. What, he's, what the Philistine lords are saying is, is once David gets in the heat of the thing and once he sees Saul, in trouble, uh, he's not going to fight his uh, his relatives. He's not going to fight his friends. He's not going to fight his best friend Jonathan uh, on the side of the of, of King Saul. So they send him away, and David avoids infamy here. And this becomes a good lesson uh, for today. And it's a good lesson in what happens when God closes doors. Remember, remember the story of your own life. You know, the movie soundtrack that is your that is your life. Think about all the times where God has closed a door and opened a window, or think think of all the times where God has slammed a door shut uh, to some opportunity that you thought you had in the bag or you thought you deserved, and yet you end up being in the right place at the right time. In my own story, uh, I tried very, really, really hard to get to seminary, and I couldn't get there when I wanted to. There were boards, and like any grad school experience, there are gatekeepers, if you will. And for whatever reason, it just took me a little extra time to get to school you know, later than I wanted to. And yet, if I had gone when I wanted to, I wouldn't be in my church today. I can look at look at the sequence of things, and I had to go when I went in order to be at St. Luke's, my church, which is a really cool church. 
and really, really happy with how my life worked out. But I wasn't happy at the time. I'm, it's not it's not fun to have a door closed in your face. Yet I think on the horizon, if you will, if we just live a little longer, we'll find that God always has a plan for us. You know, God had a plan for David, which was simply to be the greatest king they ever had. That probably wouldn't have happened had he fought for the Philistines in the Jezreel Valley. So there, here, there's a good lesson for you there. But it still didn't answer the question uh, that I want to start with, and that is why. Why did Saul come down out from Mount Gilboa? He, he's enough of a soldier. He understands tactics. He understands strategy. And he knows he has an undermanned army. So why did he come down into the valley for a certain uh, ba- bloodbath? Why this battle? Well, the story begins in another valley. If we were to think of this as a movie, what we would have now is a is a flashback, if you will, to another valley and another battle. And it's the day that Saul met David. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And again, I'll paraphrase this for you, but you all know the story. It's the story of David and Goliath. The Philistine army and the Israelite army, the Hebrew army, uh, were facing each other on two mountain ranges at a place called the Valley of Elah, another valley. But in this case, Saul knew better than to take his army down into the field to be decimated by the Philistines. So it was a standoff. It was almost like a, a trench affair. And in those days, they would often try to fight a proxy battle in order to, to, to break a stalemate. And the proxy battle would be a battle between two champions. And whoever wins uh, gets to claim victory in the field. And the Philistines had a champion named Goliath, and he was a giant. We're told he was a giant. We're not told how big he was. And I got to be honest with you, people were so small back then. He, he, he could he could have been my size and, and been a giant, but he was a giant much larger than anyone. And you can imagine how fearsome and frightening he would have been striding up and down the valley, calling for anyone in the Hebrew army to 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 fight, you know, to fight him. Uh, I can imagine a very large sword and a very large javelin and a very big helmet and David shows up to bring his brothers some food, and he, he sees this guy, and he sees nobody's moving, and he makes the offer. Uh, I'm a shepherd, David says to the king. I've killed bears and lions with my sling. Uh, I can make dispatch of this dude. And and Saul is so taken with this bravery. He offers his own arm, armor. Uh, David tries it on. It's clunky. It doesn't feel right to them. He takes it off, and he takes five smooth stones from the stream there, and he takes a slingshot, and then the rest is history. Now, I would like to submit that David's experience as he killed the giant with a stone uh, to the head was an example of the kind of religion that God wants his people to have, which is intentional but able to pivot. It's a good analogy for the way that God asked for for the Hebrews to worship him. Uh, Half of the book of Exodus is about the creation of a tent, a tent that's that's a certain color and it's stitched away and it's a certain size and it honors God in a a very, very uh, measured, intentional way. But it also moves. It can move where they need to go. It can move around. So, so our religion should be should be our best, but we should also be willing to adapt and willing to change. I think we get into trouble when we we stay fixed in place, and that was the trouble with the temple. Someone asked me one day, so if half of the book of Exodus is about the building or creation of a tent, where are the instructions for the temple? There aren't any. God never asked for a house. He never asked for a fixed place in Jerusalem. But he did tell King Solomon uh, if once he finished the darn thing, and it was Solomon's design, he said, if you, if you will dwell with me and follow my commandments, I will live in this house. I will live in this house if you keep my commandments. That was the only condition for it. And so David here is modeling the religion, if you will, 
uh, for all of them, he's he's able to he's able to adapt. He's able to 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 come around with a new idea uh, with God on his side. Now, I did read a, a, an interesting letter from a physician to an archaeology magazine uh, just yesterday, and he suggested too that people with gigantism this this disease that it's a, it's a pituitary gland issue where they become enormous people and they have enormous protuberances on their skulls because their bones kind of grow out in a way that most people with this sort of affliction, giant people, don't have any peripheral vision, which is interesting because a javelin and a broadsword is a frontal attack weapon so that David could have easily uh, slipped off to the side and, and, and killed Goliath with that stone. Also, javelin ranges are about 20 yards. Slingshots are about 40 yards. I mean, David, it really wasn't quite the underdog story that we've probably made it out to be. And who knows if this doctor's right. Goliath didn't even know what hit him. Well, it should have been a happy ending, right? I mean, they, they win the battle. Uh, David kills the giant, and, and suddenly the Hebrews have won the field, if you will, and everything should be happily ever after, except for this little scene. And it, it takes place in the next chapter. It's 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I just want to read a few verses to you. This is beginning with the sixth verse. As they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, women came out from all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy, with musical instruments. And women sang to one another as they made merry. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, for this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he do but have the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. Who is Saul? Saul is the first king of Israel. Uh, God's people had been ruled for a period of time by judges, tribal leaders, if you will, uh, probably most famously Samson. And then they had a prophet uh, in the north. They had a high priest, Eli, and Shiloh, and then the prophet Samuel to sort of shepherd them and, and, and give them guidance. But they wanted a king. I, I think it's it's fair to say that on this cusp of the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, they needed more of a centralized government to bring these tribes together uh, for stability, if you will. And also, their kings are fancy. I mean, the Canaanite kings had palaces, and the Philistine lords had palaces and capital cities, and so they wanted something that looked like their neighbors. And Samuel made great pains to say that it's very dangerous to have a monarchy. God, a theme of the Bible, and, and I'll, I'll list several themes in this lesson, but a theme of the Bible is, is, will you be different in the way that I ask you to be different? And God's people were always asked to be different than their neighbors. Uh, I think I think Samuel feared that if they had a king, they would start to forget, that they would start to look like their neighbors bar, their neighbors' ethics. He said as much. He said that kings would uh, be expensive and their children would be corrupt and it would be it would be troublesome for them, uh, but they wear him down. And so uh, God's, God's man is King Saul, and they approve of this heartily. Uh, everybody's excited about Saul. The future's bright with Saul. Saul is from a, a blue-blooded family. He's handsome. He looks good in the uniform, rides tall in the saddle. He looks very, very much like a king. Uh, David, on the other hand, is not. David is small in stature, and while the Bible says that he's ruddy in appearance, which causes us for generations of Sunday school books to, to make us think that he's like a little redheaded Irishman, the word that the word ruddy actually means Arab, which means that he was dark in appearance and and uh, and small, and doesn't really look like the ideal uh, monarch, if you will, whatever whatever their ideal appearance uh, might have been. So the the irony here is that God looks upon the heart, not upon the external beauty of anybody, of external stature. Uh, God doesn't care if you're born on third base. He wants to know if you've got a heart 
willing to serve. And so we prove here that Saul is deficient because a big theme in Scripture, if God asks us to be different, another theme of the Bible is that our appetites will eat us up. And Saul is a victim of one particular appetite, and that's his jealousy of David. Once these women sing this song, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. He is absolutely consumed with David. He, he and, and, and another way to put this is to say that our appetites will always let us down. We can never have enough. We can never be enough. We can never have more than someone else. And yet he fixates on what David has, which is this, this courage and this admiration of the people uh, that he can never have, and his own jealousy destroys him. We can see this in chapter First uh, Samuel chapter 28, which is the eve of the battle. If, if you want to know uh, why he's down there, you can begin to see the reason. I'll paraphrase something, then I'm going to read it to you. So what happens in First Samuel 28 is that Saul is on Mount Gilboa. Uh, he knows that if he goes down in the valley, he'll die. But he's just got to know. He, he can't. He can't understand. He can't understand why he's not satisfied. He can't understand why David continues to be uh, revered, if you will. He, he he feels restless inside, and so he consults a witch at a place called Endor, which is a village inside the Jezreel Valley. And I've got a little history with Endor. Uh, places places that you traveled in Israel today are places from the Bible, and they've always been there. So my friend Edan and I were traveling in the Jezreel Valley, just sort of chasing chasing some stories and, and chasing Elijah, actually. And we saw we saw this sign, and it said Endor. is an exit for Endor, a little highway in the valley. I said, let's go to Endor. And so we did. He had never been there before, hoping to find some archaeology. What we found was an old folks' home, and people were out there doing chair stretch and and um, and invited us to an art show. They are very, very sweet. They did have a little a Byzantine church museum, a church that was built in the 7th century, which means that it was finished right before the Islamic Jihad closed it down. It only only been in existence for a few years, but they had a lovely mosaic, and we went to Endor. And they also had a museum there of the of the Israelite army. They had they had things left over from this battle, and what they had were very very little little spears. You could see how Saul had no chance against the Philistines. These little spears reminded me of little aboriginal type weapons that you might find in a in a in a southeastern mound uh, if you will the mound culture indians or, or the native american uh, peoples of of our part of the world that had very very crude you know iron i mean excuse me stone age uh weapons this sort of thing right uh, Saul Saul just had no chance but he goes and he summons a witch at Endor and another lesson here is never trust a leader that breaks their own rules because he had expelled all the wizards and the mediums and the witches from the land. Another theme of the Bible for listing themes is never indulge in sorcery or witchcraft or the dark arts. It's just that that's a big no-no. And yet he finds this witch. The witch doesn't know who he is. And then when she finally figures out what he's up to and she figures out that he's King Saul and he's trying to summon up Samuel from the dead to ask him what's going to happen if he goes into battle, uh, the witch has to come apart. And Samuel is mad too, because Samuel has just been sleeping right in the in the place where dead folks sleep with the Lord, and now he's back face to face with Saul. And I'm going to read First Samuel 28 verse 15. This would make a great movie. Then Samuel said to Saul, "Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up?" Saul answered, "I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams." So I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Samuel said, then why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you just as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it 
to your neighbor, David. Well, Saul is as good as dead, and now he can't see straight. And at this point, he's just got to know. He's just got to know, am I good enough? Am I as good as David? He knows that he can't win the battle. He's enough of a soldier to know this, but he's blinded by jealousy, and he heads down into the spring of Jezreel where we began this podcast episode. Now, 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 13, may be the saddest piece of Scripture outside of Good Friday. I think Good Friday's the saddest, but this may be the saddest chapter in the Bible, and for that reason, I want to read it to you instead of a paraphrase. This is 1 Samuel 31. We're going to read 13 verses. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and many fell on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. The Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul. The archers found him. He was badly wounded by them. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer was unwilling for he was terrified. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all the men died together on the same day. The men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and Saul and his sons were dead. And they forsook their own towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons had fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, and they stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of Astarte, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, All the valiant men set out. They traveled all night long, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. It's poignant and beautiful, and there's a backstory that even makes it more poignant. Uh, Travel there today, and you will see uh, the mountains are now called Saul's Shoulders, and there are three mountains named uh, for Saul's sons. It's it's really, really powerful. It's almost like the Jezreel Valley is a is a living memorial, if you will, to the to the death of their first king who who could have had everything, but he lost it all uh, due to his own appetites. But the other backstory comes from Numbers 32, which is a book that many of us don't read, don't spend any time with. But in the book of Numbers, uh, you've got Moses giving final instructions to Joshua about how to cross the Jordan River uh, into the land that God will give them, right? Cross that body of water and so that their land will be on the west side of the Jordan. But there were two, two tribes, and there were the men of Reuben and Gad, and they had, been, they had been successful on the east side of the Jordan River, successful with cattle and with flocks. And so they asked Moses for permission to keep their tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan as opposed to crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Moses thinks about it for a while, and then he says, he says something to this effect. This is the point of Numbers 32. If you will be valiant and if you will help your family when called upon, you can stay on the east side of the river. Later, they would call that land Gilead. Those were the valiant men who came and rescued the bodies of Saul and his sons. Those are the valiant men who did exactly what they promised Moses that they would do. They were true to their word and would call upon, you know, would, would come and, and save their family uh, when necessary. So a lot of, a lot of neat backstory here and, and a lot of sad things that we could even see to this very day. Well, here's our lesson. God sees our heart. 
God doesn't want us to be consumed by our appetites. Be careful when we're jealous. Don't be afraid when God closes doors. And then think of other things that you can pull out of this remarkable story. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Did you know we have breakfast all morning at St. Luke's now, and it is absolutely delicious. Beginning at 8 o'clock each Sunday morning, we take a steam table, we put it out there with lots of pre-wrapped yummy stuff from our own Jimmy Tracy, who makes breakfast from scratch that morning, and that includes scratch-made sausage biscuits, cheese grits, homemade donuts, and then something Jimmy calls a Sunday surprise, which could be anything from truffled eggs to salmon and capers to French toast, all out there available for you to purchase with your phone and a QR code and a donation, which means that if you want to have breakfast and come to Sunday school, you can have breakfast and come to Sunday school. If you want to go to Sunday school and have breakfast, do it that way. If you want to have breakfast and come to 11 o'clock, you pick the way that you want to enjoy food on a Sunday morning. Oh, and by the way, say hi to your friends. It is a lot of fun and it's delicious and we want to see you. Breakfast at St. Luke's from 8 o'clock until noon. We will see you there.